0: This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. In May of 1983, Detective Pratt received a letter from Jeanette's father, Ralph Fisher. In the police report, Detective Pratt notes, he is upset that this matter has not been solved. Between May and August of 1983, Ralph Fisher, who was divorced from her mother, Marion, in 1971, wrote numerous letters to people in positions of local and state government including the county prosecutor, James Talaski, Detective Sergeant George Pratt, as well as a senator and a governor. The following is transcribed from an original draft, though it is unclear to whom this particular letter was being written. On January 19, 1983, my daughter, Jeanette G. Robertson, was murdered. I'm sure you are quite familiar with this case. Being her father, I am deeply concerned about her murderer being brought to justice. As you probably know, I have been to see Detective Pratt concerning this. I was unable to get any information from him, except that he has no suspects. There is no need for me to go into detail as to how Jeanette's death has affected me. It is hard to describe the grief knowing that Jeanette died so young and the manner in which she was killed. She was a good kid, happily married and friendly with everyone. As you are well aware, this also has affected Mary and her mother, who is not in the best of health. I am not a detective, and I do not claim to be one. I have conducted my own private investigation and have notified Detective Pratt as to my progress. From the death certificate, Jeanette was killed with a blunt instrument, whatever that means. Estimated time of death was two to three o'clock in the afternoon. How anybody could walk into a department store at that time of day and kill a person, and from what I have learned, she did not die instantly. Also that, someone else's blood was found near her body which means that she must have fought for her life and must have inflicted some type of wound on her attacker i wonder how much pain and suffering she had to endure it is very hard for me to print those words when i think about that so what does it all add up to her husband alvin was in the store twice the day she was killed this information i obtained from the store manager How did the store manager know this if he was not at the store at the time? The manager told me he was notified of Jeanette's death and then came to the store. I was also told by the manager that Alvin refused to take a lie detector test. Why? Perhaps Alvin knows who killed her and is afraid. I also found out that Jeanette had frequently visited a pet shop in Big Rapids. She told this to Marion where she met a person who wanted to obtain some gerbils and small animals for experiments as he claimed to be a teacher or professor from the local college or one of the schools. This person could be the one who murdered her. I went to this pet store and talked to a young man with black hair who said he was the owner. He said he doesn't know of anyone who frequented his store who claimed to be a teacher or professor who wanted to obtain small animals for experiments. But he did have a friend who could use all the gerbils I could obtain. As I told him, I had some. Perhaps this friend is the one Jeanette met in his store. In conversation, Jeanette probably told him or her where she worked. All of this information I gave to Detective Pratt. As far as I know, there have been no recent violent murders in Reed City prior to my daughter's death. This whole thing smells fishy to me. Someone is either lying or covering up for someone. I believe Jeanette knew the person who killed her, possibly a well-known person from Reed City or the surrounding area. Again, I will say that it seems impossible that anyone could walk into that store and kill a person. And as I said before from the information I have gathered, it didn't happen in a moment. While there were people in that store, and get away with it, is beyond me. I also realize that police have other duties and cannot devote all of their time to one murder. But if this murderer is not caught, he or she may seek another victim. I don't know whether you are married or have any children of your own, but if you do have a daughter and she was killed, especially in that manner, then you could understand how I feel. I hope and pray this will not be a forgotten case. I realize it takes time to solve murders. I am not rich. If I were, I would hire a private detective. I also hope you will take the time to answer this letter, as I would like to know if the investigation is continuing. Sincerely, Jeanette's Father It is unclear where Ralph Fisher was getting his information, particularly about specifics regarding graphic injuries, which is the section that I left out, as well as the blood found near Jeanette's body. I have never heard about any blood found near Jeanette's body, but I would assume that if they had, that would kind of be a slam dunk. As far as the injuries and his description of such, These aren't generally the types of specifics that law enforcement shares with family that soon after a murder, or ever, at least until the case is solved. Whether or not any of his information is factually correct, I cannot verify, although the information about what he said the manager told him, specifically about not being there when the murder occurred and having to return, is interesting. I wonder if it was John Ingalls that told him that or David Ingalls. We know John Ingalls was there at the time Jeanette was found, based on Flossie's recollection. Perhaps Dave had left for the day, and he was called back to the store. Unfortunately, I encountered this numerous times while researching this case. Descriptions of injuries that were not technical in nature, like the M.E. report, but were visual observations that had to have been imparted by someone who had either been at the scene to witness the body or got it secondhand from someone who had. One has to ask themselves if things like this play heavily into why this case has not been closed. There is only so much damage you can do to a crime scene, so many people traipsing around the body that shouldn't have been there, so much information put out there in error, Before a case becomes something that no prosecutor would touch, there are two elements to this crime that stand out to me and that I wonder about from a profiling perspective. The first is the apparent manic use of multiple weapons. as i said most if not all of the weapons used were weapons of convenience meaning he would have found them in or around the basement area we know that around the time she was murdered during that two to four time period taking into account what gary said about her condition when he assessed her and the time listed as being when she was found 350 it's probably right in the middle somewhere around 3 which is what the death certificate says. But we have to remember that the perpetrator was probably back there with her a bit before the actual time of death, taking into account the amount of things that were done to her and the steady stream of customers during those last two hours, which could mean that he was stuck back there for some time between customers until he was able to make his escape. My theory is that the attack may have begun in the pet department itself and then after the initial assault he brought her into the back room. Some of the things he did, based on the autopsy report, suggest to me that Jeanette could have regained consciousness if she lost consciousness fully during that initial assault and he had to again render her unconscious, maybe when he heard someone coming downstairs. Nobody heard any screams or any sounds at all from the basement or the back room. So he was keeping her quiet somehow. What if customers came down while he was doing whatever he was doing and he had to remain quiet and keep her quiet for a period of time before that customer left the pet department? Once they made it up the stairs, did all that pent-up anxiety from having to avoid being heard play into reigniting the rage and cause him to lash out, grabbing anything nearby, and setting upon her like an animal? Or what if at some point she was unconscious, but he knew she wasn't dead, and he realized that he could not leave a witness behind? So he searched around that back room for an item that he could use to finish her off. I can also say, without being specific, that there were things he did that were not necessary to completing that task, meaning he was taking a risk in doing them, and they were being done for emotional reasons, not out of necessity. These were things that he did out of pure rage, not just a killer. They were outlets for his viciousness. So, knowing all this, what type of person employs such risky behavior? He has already attacked her in a public place where the risk of being caught is high. And now he's back there doing things that have nothing to do with trying to kill her. If she is not conscious for these things, then they are not technically sadistic acts. Because in order for them to be so, the person must be able to feel pain. Sadistic offenders get off, if you'll pardon the expression, on causing pain and seeing that pain and fear in the person's eyes. But if he's doing these things to her while she's not conscious, who is he doing it for? Himself? Is this about his personal sense of control and maintaining it? Or is he out of control? All of these questions would need to be answered based on the facts of the case in order to get a sense of the type of person we're looking for. I do think we're looking for someone who doesn't like to be challenged, someone with anger issues, or at least who had anger issues at the time, three decades ago. I think it's likely someone who has some history of violence, whether it's domestic or otherwise, and that's why they were looking at someone like Lee Peterson, who had already displayed such actions, according to his wife. What happened that day? Did Jeanette turn this person down? Did she turn her back on him? Did she tell him she wanted him to leave? This segues into the second element of the story that stands out to me the man coming down in the days leading up to the murder who was bothering her. Now, this man may very well be an entirely different person. After all, if, in fact, the man in the composite sketch isn't just a witness and he's the actual perpetrator, he was described as 20 to 30 years old, 5'8 to 5'9, with light to blondish-brown hair. The man bothering Jeanette as described by her friend, had dark hair, square glasses, that she described as old-fashioned, and he was in his late 30s or early 40s. These two descriptions do not sound like the same person. My opinion, and here I will direct you to the disclaimer at the beginning of each episode. This is an opinion. But my opinion is that the person bothering Jeanette in the days leading up to the murder, could very well be the person who killed her. That, coupled with the phone calls she is alleged to have received, feel to me as though she had someone who had developed an unhealthy obsession with her. Who that was, and why that was, I don't know. But I sure do hope police know the answers to the who and why because they may very well know who the man was that was coming in and bothering her. They may have multiple witnesses to who that person was, but this is the part that we all have to understand and keep in mind. Even if they do know, they have to be able to prove that he was the one who did it, and that proof will require a level of certainty that meets or exceeds the reasonable doubt threshold that the prosecutor would need to get a conviction. And if there are any issues that muddy the waters in that regard, that is why the case is where it is right now. I'm not convinced that the person in the composite sketch is the perpetrator. First, because I had one person who told me that they thought he looked like the son of a woman he knew from the hospital, who I learned was Thomas Hawkins. We know that Thomas Hawkins was in the store twice that day, once with Carl around 10 or 11, and he was among the people who was there when she was found. Early newspaper reports say two different sketch artists did drawings of the person made by three different witnesses, one of whom was Flossie, and she described him to me as a young man who came in the store often. She thought he had been in earlier in the day. The article says police believed the man was in shortly before the time of death. Later, when I asked Detective Pratt about the sketch, he said, If you notice, two of them look very similar, and we have learned the identity of the person in two of those sketches. That sounds to me like he thinks there might have been two different people being described by witnesses, or at least they were not sure. In recent days, Detective Forner categorized it as there being possibly one unidentified male. Newspaper clippings from the Times show police were looking for people seen nearby, releasing three sketches based on witness descriptions of one man in particular. There were people that were in the store that day, uh, most of which I believe have been identified, at least uh, one male subject that was never identified, so there were sketches put out to the public at that time detectives released three separate sketches, three different witness descriptions of a man who police wanted to talk to. We couldn't call him a suspect. A person of interest may, may be a suspect, but at this time could only be a witness. So they were actually trying to locate anybody and everybody that had been in and out of that store. Detective Sergeant George Pratt worked for the Michigan State Police for 46 years and three months when he retired. When I was researching the book he graciously agreed to sit down and speak with me even though he made it perfectly clear that he was not crazy about me writing the book about the still open homicide case he also wasn't crazy about me getting as much of the report as i did and i completely understand why this case has its unique problems and police not being able to control the flow of information is not a position that they particularly care to be in still I give him credit for not blinking an eye when I plopped down across from him at the county sheriff's department, where he now works part-time. I asked if I could record our conversation and he told me that he would rather I didn't. So I gripped my pen tighter and jumped right in. If someone were to ask you why this case remains unsolved after all these years, what would your response be, Detective Pratt? He chose his words precisely. The answer would be that we have not achieved the necessary information to be able to prosecute it. Is there a DNA profile from Jeanette's crime scene that you believe to be the offender in CODIS? Again, very precise wording. We have mitochondrial DNA. They also have some unidentified prints, he told me. I didn't learn until I got home and did some research that the mitochondrial DNA wasn't the gold standard that nuclear DNA was, nor do I know if in the couple of years since we have spoken, if the crime lab has been able to apply new technology to get some better DNA off of any of the evidence they sent for retesting. Why was Prosecutor Tulaski called to the scene? According to his report, Southworth called him. Was it common back then for the prosecutor to be called to the crime scenes? Well, there are a couple of schools of thought about calling the prosecutor to the scene. Some feel that by doing so they become a witness, so it makes it difficult for them to prosecute the case. I tried again. So you don't know why they did in this case? He replied, I have no independent knowledge of why they called, no. Can you tell me what Ted Platt's role was at the scene? I asked him. He had been a patron of the store on two occasions that day. He was a Reed City officer. Do you know who called him to the scene? I asked. I do not. It could have been Chief Rathbun, but I have no independent knowledge. Officer Platts may have been trained to work with Northern County's Evidence Service regarding processing. At the time of my interview with Detective Pratt, I had not talked to him, but when I later spoke to Nelson Galinas the creator of NCES, he told me that Mr. Platt's had not taken the training to his recollection. He recalled that Detective Southworth and then-Deputy Chuck Davis, both of Osceola County, had taken the NCES training. This was not training that was given to city police officers. They were contracted with county, not city. Detective Pratt, do you believe that the scene was compromised in any way that could make prosecuting any future case more difficult? I asked him. No, inasmuch as there are no pristine crime scenes, all scenes have something you wish had not occurred, so it's something you come to expect. Are you confident that everyone who was allowed to leave Gambles after the body was discovered, but before you arrived, has been tracked down and questioned? I hope so, he said. We tracked down between 125 and 150 people who had been in the store, and that was described to us as being a slow day. I wanted to clarify something. So is that the reason for the press release mentioned in your report? The one with the line that said, officers are asking that anyone, whether you have been already contacted or not, please contact the Michigan State Police? Detective Pratt nodded, yes. What about the sketch? Was that of a perpetrator or of a witness? Well, that depends. Those were actually drawn by different sketch artists of individuals seen in the store that day, as described by different people. If you notice, two of them look very similar, and we have learned the identity of the person in two of those sketches. So, Chief Rathbun, publicly stating that he was out of town until his death, Why do you think that he distanced himself from this case? I don't know that he distanced himself from the case. I have no knowledge of where the out-of-town came from or where he was when he was contacted, but he was doing things as police chief that day. I know he went with the city manager to notify the decedent's mother. I said, But in the MSP report, when Albright and Vincent went back to speak with Marion Fisher, she said Officer Finkbeiner notified her at the city building. Was that office next to where the city police department is now? I have no knowledge of whether Officer Finkbeiner notified her at any point, but I know Chief Rathman went with the city manager to the city building where she was. It was located where the courthouse annex is now. That would be a few blocks straight down Upton Avenue from the Gamble store. Detective Pratt, I asked nearing the end of my list of questions. What do you think it would take for Jeanette's case to be solved? Information. Physical evidence linking the perpetrator to the crime. So, that's where we are. Police don't yet have what they need. And then there's the evidence. I'm sure they got a lot of fingerprints and fiber evidence out of that back room but that doesn't necessarily produce something you can work with in court. There were quite a few people associated with this case that I could hypothetically see police looking at very hard, who might find occasion to have been in that basement beneath the Gamble store. Employees? Customers? A hell of a lot of people in Reed City went into that store on a regular basis. Some of them might be suspects. What if some of the people who were down there that day after she was found were suspects? That's going to add to the problem. And then there's the matter of those unidentified prints that Detective Pratt mentioned. They could just be a random customer from another day. Or it could be the killer. Evidence in Jeanette's case has been sent in for retesting. I was told that by a Michigan State Police lieutenant when we spoke about what the cold case team was working on. They had sent in evidence from a few of the local cases. That was about a year ago. I don't know the status of that evidence or if it's even come back yet, given the backlogs that these labs often have. What I do know is if they had what they needed, I probably wouldn't be here today telling you this story. I believe there may still be information out there that police need that they don't have. I hope, by dispelling some of the unfounded theories and gossip in this podcast, the community might think back to things they may have seen that day and, with a fresh perspective, decide to come forward and share what they know. The clock is ticking, though. Time is against justice for Jeanette. I'm hoping that this case doesn't end up like the victim from my first podcast season. Norma Waldron never got justice because they didn't have enough definitive evidence to ensure a conviction, even though they knew who the perpetrator was. Sometimes there's just not enough. I don't want this to be one of those times. There's one more issue I want to leave you with. Because I was only given access to a highly redacted section of the Michigan State Police Report that covered the first three years of their investigation. I have no idea what work was done in the ensuing years. Also, based on the notes in the report, the Reed City Police Department and the Osceola County Sheriff's Department were assisting on this case from the beginning. On January 20th, the day after the murder, one of the first things noted in the report is that a command center was finally set up in the Reed City Police Department with an agreement reached for this location to be utilized as the investigation center. News releases were made for information to be called to the state police post in Reed City. As the tips began to filter in, they were assigned to officers of the investigating agencies for follow-up. This clearly suggests that the city police and the sheriff's department were actively helping. Yet I was never able to get a single report from any of the other agencies after their first responders' report on day one. We have absolutely no way of knowing what Reed City police officers and Osceola County deputies were working on or how well this group was working together and sharing information. I'm pointing that out because this means that there's a great deal of information out there that I don't know. So it's possible, likely probable in fact, that I've gotten some things wrong. If you heard anything in this podcast that you know to be inaccurate and would like to message me, I will be doing updates on Jeanette's case as new information comes in. If, after listening to this podcast, you think you have information to offer and would like to be interviewed for an upcoming update episode, drop me a message on Facebook on the Down and Away page or to my personal facebook page i'm there under jenny decker it's pretty easy to find me my email is DeckerJenny@gmail.com. at gmail.com that's j-e-n-i if you have any information about the murder of jeanette Robertson, please contact the michigan state police or reed city police department if you'd like the email of someone to contact directly drop me a message and i will give you a contact address and point you in the right direction. You do not even need to give me your information. I'll just give you what you need and send you on your way. It's up to the community now. Law enforcement does not have what they need or he would be in jail. It's up to you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you stay subscribed, you will be notified of any updates to Jeanette's case.